This is part three, volume one of the new and complete Newgate calendar, read by Roy Schreiber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Particular account of the life and amours of Mary Adams, who is executed at Tyburn for privately stealing. This young woman, who is the daughter of a journeyman shoemaker, was born at Reading in Berkshire, and when she was old enough to go to service, went to live with a grocer in that town. As Mary was a girl of vivacity and genteel figure, she soon attracted the regard of the grocer's son, and the consequence of their connection became very conspicuous in a short time. As soon as it was evident that she was pregnant, she was dismissed from her master's service, on which she immediately made oath that his son was the father of the child thereafter to be born, a circumstance that can the old gentleman to support her till after she was brought to bed. She soon had been delivered before she went to London, and entered into the service of a mercer in Cheapside, where, by prudent conduct, she might have retrieved the character she had forfeited in the country. But prudence was not among the number of her virtues, for though she had already suffered from her indiscretion, an intimacy soon subsisted between her master and herself. But as their associations could not conveniently be held at home, they contrived to meet on evenings at other places, when the mistress of the house was gone to the theatre or out on a visit. This connection continued till the girl was far advanced in her pregnancy, when the master, apprehensive of disagreeable consequences at home, advised the girl to quarrel with her mistress, in order that she might be dismissed, and then took a lodging for her at Hackney where she remained till she was delivered, and in the meantime the connection between her and her master continued as before. Being brought to bed of a child that died a few hours after its birth, the master thought himself happy, supposing he could easily free himself from the encumbrance of the mother, of whom he now began to be heartily tired. When the girl recovered from her lying in, he told her that she must go into service at a it did not suit him to maintain her any longer. But this enraged her to the highest degree, and she threatened to discover the nature of their connection to his wife unless he would make her a present of twenty guineas. And with this demand he thought it prudent to comply, happy to get rid of her even on such terms. Being now in possession of money, and in no want of clothes in which to make a genteel appearance, she removed from Hackney to Witch Street without Temple Bar, but was scarcely settled in her new lodgings, before she sent a letter to the mercer's wife, whom she acquainted with the nature of the connection that had subsisted between her late master and herself, but she did not mention her place of abode in this letter. The consequence was, the mercer was obliged to acknowledge the crime of which he had been guilty, and solicit his wife's pardon in terms of the utmost humiliation. This pardon was promised, but whether it was ever ratified remains a doubt. Mrs. Adams had the advantage of an engaging figure, and passing as a young widow in her new lodgings, she was soon married to a young fellow in the neighborhood, but it was not long before he discovered the imposition that had been put upon him on which he embarked on board a ship in the royal navy by this time mrs adams money was almost expended but as her clothes were yet good 
an attorney of Clement's Inn took her into keeping, and after she had lived a short time with him, she went to another of the same profession, with whom she cohabited above two years. But on his marriage she was once more abandoned to seek her fortune. Fertile of invention, and too proud to condescend to accept of a common service, she became connected with a notorious bawd of Drury Lane, who was very glad of her assistance, and promised herself considerable advantages from the association. In this situation Mrs. Adams displayed her charms to considerable advantage, and was happy as any common prostitute can expect to be. But alas, what is this happiness but a prelude to the extremity of misery and distress? Such indeed it was found by Mrs. Adams, who having been gratified by a gentleman with a considerable sum of money, the bawd quarrelled with her respecting the dividing of it, and a battle ensuing, our heroine was turned out of the house after she had got a black eye in the contest. After this she used to parade in the park in the daytime, and walk the streets in the evenings in search of casual lovers, but as she joined the practice of theft to that of incontinence, few of her chance acquaintance escaped being robbed. She was often taken into custody for these practices, but continually escaped through defect of evidence. At length an end was put her to her depredations, for having enticed a gentleman to a bagno near Covent Garden, she picked his pocket of all his money and a bank-note to a large amount, and left him while he slept. When the gentleman awaked, he sent immediately notice to the bank to stop payment, and as Mrs. Adams came soon afterwards to receive the money for the note, she was taken into custody and lodged in prison, and being in a short time tried at the Old Bailey, she was convicted, received sentence of death, and was executed at Tyburn on the 16th of June, 1702. After her conviction, she lived in the same gay and dissipated manner that she had done before, and was visited by many of her former acquaintance, who supplied her with money to support her extravagance. Agreeable to her own request, too, their mistaken bounty contributed to purchase her a suit of mourning in which she was executed, and they buried her in as handsome a manner as if her life had been conducted by the rules of virtue and she had likewise been a woman of fortune. Interesting particulars respecting John Peter Dramati, who was hanged at Tyburn for the murder of his wife. The unhappy subject of this narrative was the son of Protestant parents, and born at Saverdon in the county of Foix in the province of Languedoc in France. He received a religious education, and when he arrived at years of maturity, he left his own country on account of the persecution then prevailing there, and went to Geneva. From thence he travelled into Germany, and served as a horse-grenadier under the elector of Brandenburg, who was afterwards king of Prussia. When he had been in this sphere of life about a year, he came over to England, and entered into the service of Lord Haversham, with whom he remained about twelve months, and then enlisted as a soldier in the regiment of Colonel de la Mourniernier. And having made two campaigns in Flanders, the regiment was ordered into Ireland, where it was broke in consequence of which 
Dramati obtained his liberty. He now became acquainted with a widow, between fifty and sixty years of age, who pretending she had a great fortune and allied to the royal family of France, he soon married her on account of her supposed wealth and rank, and her understanding of English and Irish, thinking it prudent to have a wife who could speak the languages of the country in which he proposed to spend the remainder of his life. He had not been long married before he found out he had been imposed upon, for his wife had no fortune at all, on which he took a small house and a piece of ground about ten miles from Cork, intending to turn farmer. But being altogether ignorant of husbandry, he found it impossible to subsist by that profession on which he went to Cork and worked as a skinner, being the trade to which he was brought up. At the expiration of a twelve-month from his coming to that city, he went to London, and offering services again to Lord Haversham, he was accepted, and in this service he remained till the preparation of that crime which brought him to a shameful end. The substance of the narrative that Dramati gave of the cause and consequence of the murder was as follows. His wife, unhappy on account of their separate residence, wished to live with him at Lord Haversham's, which he refused to consent to, saying that his lordship did not know he was married. Hereupon she entreated him to quit his service, which he likewise refused, saying that he could not provide himself so well in any other situation, and that it would be ungenerous to leave so indulgent a master. The wife now began to evince the jealousy of her disposition, and intimated that Dramati had fixed his affection on some other woman, and the following circumstance aggravated the malignant disorder that wrangled in her mind. Dramati, being attacked by a violent fever about the Christmas preceding the time that the murder was committed, his noble master gave orders that all possible care should be taken of him at his lordship's expense. At this period Mrs. Dramati paid a visit to her husband, and again urged him to quit his service, which he positively refused. A servant girl now came into the room, bringing him some water gruel and the wife, suspecting that this was her rival in her husband's affections, once more entreated him to leave his place. In answer to which, he said he must be out of his senses to abandon a situation in which he was so well provided for and treated with such humanity. Dramati, having recovered of his illness, visited his wife at her lodgings as often as was consistent with the duties of his station. But this was not being often enough as she wished him to come, she grew more uneasy than before. At length Lord Haversham took lodgings at Kensington, and Dramati was so busy in packing up some articles on the occasion that he had no opportunity of acquainting his wife with their removal. At length she learnt this circumstance from another quarter, on which, inflamed to the highest degree of rage, she went to Kensington to reproach her husband with his unkindness to her, though he declared he always maintained her as well as he was able, and as proof of it had given her three guineas but a little time before the murder was committed. Frequent were the disputes 
between this unhappy man and his wife, till, on the ninth of June, Dramati, being sent to London, and his business lying near Soho, he called on his wife, who lodged in that neighbourhood, and having been with her some time, he was about to take his leave, but she laid hold of him, and wanted to detain him. But he got from her, and went towards Charing Cross, to which place she followed him, but at length she seemed to yield to his persuasions that she should go home as he told her that he was going to his lord in spring green but instead of going home she went and waited for him at or near hyde park gate and in the evening he found her there as he was going to kensington at the park gate she stopped him and insisted that he should go no further unless he took her with him and after many words had passed between them, she said she would go in spite of his teeth, or else she would have his life, or he should have hers. He now left her, and went towards Chelsea, but she followed him till they came near Bloody Bridge, where the quarrel being vehemently renewed, she seized his neckcloth, and would have strangled him, whereupon he beat her most unmercifully with his cane and sword, which later he imagined she broke with her hands, as she was remarkable for her strength, and, if he had been unarmed, would easily have overpowered him. Having wounded her in so many places as to conclude he had killed her, his passion immediately began to subside, and falling on his knees he devoutly implored the pardon of God for the horrid sin of which he had been guilty, and then went to Kensington, where his fellow-servants, observing that his clothes were bloody, he said that he had been attacked by two men in Hyde Park, who would have robbed him of his clothes, but that he defended himself and broke the head of one of them. This story was credited for the present, and on the following day Dramati went to London, where he heard a paper cried in the streets respecting the murder that had been committed, and though he dreaded being taken into custody every moment, he did not seek to make his escape, but dispatched his business in London and returned to Kensington. On the following day the servants heard a paper cried respecting a barbarous murder that had been committed near Bloody Bridge, on which they told their lord of it, hinting that they suspected Dramati to have murdered his wife, as they had been known to quarrel before, and he had come home the preceding evening with his sword broke, the hilt of it bruised, his cane shattered, and some blood on his clothes. Upon this Lord Haversham with a view to employ him that he might not think he was suspected, bid him get the coach ready, and in the interim sent for a constable, who, on searching him, found a woman's cap in his pocket, which afterwards proved to have belonged to his wife. When he was examined before a justice of the peace, he confessed that he had committed the crime, but in extenuation of it said that his wife was a worthless woman, who had entrapped him into marriage by pretending to be of royal blood of France, and a woman of fortune. On his trial it appeared he went into Lord Haversham's chamber late on the night on which the murder was committed, after that nobleman was in bed, and it was supposed that he had an intention of robbing his lordship, who called out to know what he wanted. 
but in a solemn declaration Dramatti made after his conviction, he steadfastly denied any intention of robbing his master, but only went into the room to fetch a silver tumbler, which he had forgot, that he might have it in readiness to take in some ass's milk in the morning for his lordship. The body of Mrs. Dramatti was found in a ditch between Hyde Park and Chelsea, and a track of blood was seen to the distance of twenty yards, at the end of which a piece of a sword was found sticking in a bank, which fitted the other part of the sword in the prisoner's possession. The circumstances attending the murder being proved to the satisfaction of the jury, the culprit was found guilty, condemned, and on the 21st of July, 1703, was executed at Tyburn, and yielded up his life, a sincere penitent, not only with respect to the crime for which he suffered, but for all others of which he had been guilty. Narrative of the Life execution and wonderful recovery of john smith called half hang smith with cursory remarks on his extraordinary escape john smith was the son of a farmer at malton about fifteen miles from the city of york who bound him apprentice to a packer in london with whom he served out his time and afterwards worked as a journeyman he then went to sea as a merchantman after which he enlisted on board a man of war and was at the famous expedition against vigo but on the return from that expedition he was liberated smith had not been long disengaged from the naval service when he enlisted as a soldier in the regiment of guards commanded by lord cutts but in this station he soon made bad connections and engaged with some of his dissolute companions as a housebreaker. On December 5, 1705, he was arraigned on four different indictments, on two of which he was convicted and received sentence of death. While he lay under sentence, he seemed very little affected with his situation, being amused with the hopes of a reprieve through the interest of his friends. An order, however, came for his execution on the 24th day of the same month, in consequence of which he was carried to Tyburn, where he performed his devotions and was turned off in the usual manner. But when he was hung near fifteen minutes, the people present cried out, A reprieve! A reprieve! Hereupon the malefactor was cut down, and being conveyed to a house in the neighbourhood, he soon recovered, in consequence of bleeding and other proper applications. As soon as he had recovered his senses, he was asked what were his feelings at the time of execution, to which he repeatedly replied, in substance as follows, that, quote, when he was turned off, he, for some time, was sensible of very great pain occasioned by the weight of his body, and felt his spirits in a strange commotion violently pressing upwards, that having forced their way to his head, he, as it were, saw a great blaze or glaring light, which seemed to go out at his eyes with a flash, and then he lost all sense of pain that after he was cut down, and began to come to himself, 
the blood and spirits forcing themselves into their former channels, put him by a sort of pricking or shooting to such intolerable pain that he could have wished those hanged who had cut him down. End quote. Smith, after this narrow escape from the grave, pleaded to his pardon on the 20th of February, yet such was his propensity to evil deeds that he returned to his former practices, and being again apprehended, was tried at the Old Bailey for housebreaking. But some difficulties arising in the case, the jury brought in a special verdict, in consequence of which the affair was left to the opinion of twelve judges, who determined in favour of the prisoner. Notwithstanding the second extraordinary escape, he was a third time indicted. But the prosecutor, happening to die before the day of trial, he once more obtained that liberty which his conduct proved to be so unmerited. There is no account what became of this man after this third remarkable incident in his favour but Christian charity inclines us to hope that he made a proper use of the singular dispensations of providence so ably evinced in his own person. Account of the conviction, trial, and execution of Deborah Churchill as an accomplice in the murder with Hunt. Deborah Churchill, whose fate gives rise to this narrative, was born about the year 1678 in a village near Norwich. She had several children by her husband, Mr. Churchill, but her temper not being calculated to form him domestic happiness, he repined at his situation and destroyed himself by intoxication. Deborah, after this event, came to London, and being too much idle and too proud to think of earning a subsistence by her industry, she ran considerably into debt, and in order to extricate herself from her encumbrances, had recourse to a method which was formerly as common as it was unjust. Going to a public house in Holborn, she saw a soldier, and asked if he would marry her. The man immediately answered in the affirmative, on which they went in a coach to the fleet, where the nuptial knot was instantly tied. Mrs. Churchill, whose maiden name is unknown, having obtained a certificate of her marriage, enticed her husband to drink till he was quite inebriated, and then gave him the slip, happy in this contrivance to screen herself from an arrest. A little after this, she cohabited with a young fellow named Hunt, with whom she lived more than six years. Hunt appears to have been a youth of a rakish disposition. He behaved very ill to this unhappy woman, who, however, loved him to distraction, and at length forfeited her life in consequence of the regard that she had for him. One night, as Mr. Hunt and one of his associates were returning from the theatre in company with Mrs. Churchill, a quarrel arose between the men, who immediately drew their swords. While Mrs. Churchill, anxious for the safety of Mr. Hunt, interposed, and kept his antagonist at a distance, in consequence of which he received a wound, of which he died almost immediately. No sooner was the murder committed than Hunt effected his escape, and eluding his pursuers, arrived safely in Holland. But Mrs. Churchill was apprehended on the spot, and being taken before a magistrate, was committed to Newgate. 
November 1708, at the sessions held at the Old Bailey, Mrs. Churchill was indicted as an accomplice on the act of the first year of King James I called the Statute of Stabbing, by which it is enacted that, quote, if any one stabs another who hath not at that time a weapon drawn, or hath not first stricken, the party who stabbed is deemed guilty of murder if the person stabbed died within six months afterwards. End quote. Mrs. Churchill, being convicted, pleaded a state of pregnancy in bar of her execution, and a jury of matrons, being impanelled, declared that they were ignorant whether she was with child or not. Hereupon the court, willing to allow all reasonable time in a case of this nature, respited judgment for six months, at the end of which time she received sentence of death as there was no appearance of her being pregnant. This woman's behavior was extremely penitent, but she denied her guilt to the last moment of her life, having no conception that she had committed murder because she did not herself stab the deceased. She was hanged at Tyburn on the 17th of December, 1708. Full account of the lives, insurrections, and execution of Daniel Demeray and George Purchase, who were hanged at Tyburn for high treason. When the Whig ministry of Queen Anne was turned out of, or, in the modern phrase, had resigned their places, the Tory ministry who succeeded them encouraged a young divine named Henry Sacheverell to inflame the passions of the public by preaching against the settlement made at the Revolution, and inculcating all those doctrines which were then held as favourable tenets of what was called the High Church Party. Sacheverell was a man of abilities, and eminently possessed of those kind of talents which are calculated to inspire such sentiments as the preacher wished to impress his auditors with. The public in general were well informed that Dr. Chevrel's discourse tended to instigate the people against the House of Hanover, and to insinuate the right of the pretender to the throne of these realms. This caused such a general commotion that it became necessary to bring him to a trial in some way, and, contrary to all former practice respecting a man of his rank, he was tried before the House of Peers, and was silenced for three years upon conviction. But so excited were the passions of the populace in consequence of his insinuations, that they almost adored him as a prophet, and some of them were led to commit those outrages which gave rise to the following trials. Two dissenting ministers, Messrs. Bradbury and Burgess, having made themselves conspicuous by preaching in behalf of the revolutionary settlement and freedom of sentiment in matters of religion, became the immediate objects of resentment of the mob. What arose in consequence hereof will appear from the following abstract of the trials of the criminals before us. Daniel Demeray, on the 19th of April, 17. 10, was indicted for being concerned with a multitude of men, to the number of five hundred, armed with swords and clubs, 
to levy war against the queen. A gentleman disposed that, quote, going through the temple, he saw some thousands of people who had attended Dr. Sheverell from Westminster Hall, that some of them said they would pull down Dr. Burgess's meeting-house that night, end quote. Others differed as to the time of doing it, but all agreed on the act, and the meeting-house was demolished on the following night. Captain O'Rill swore that on the 1st of March, hearing that, quote, the mob had pulled down Dr. Burgess's meeting-house, he resolved to go among them, and to do what service he could to government by making discoveries, end quote. Captain O'Rill, going to Mr. Bradbury's meeting, found the people plundering it, who obliged him to pull off his hat. After this he went to Lincoln's Inn Field, where he saw a bonfire made of some of the materials of Dr. Burgess's meeting-house, and saw the prisoner, who twirled his hat, and said, quote, Damn it! I will lead you on! God damn me! We will have all the meeting-houses down! High Church and Sheverell! Huzzah! End quote. It was proved by another evidence that the prisoner headed part of the mob, some of whom proposed to go to the meeting-house in Wild Street, but that this was objected to by others, who recommended going to Drury Lane, quote, saying that that meeting-house was worth ten of that in Wild Street, end quote. Joseph Collier swore that he saw the prisoner carry a brass sconce from Dr. Burgess's meeting-house, and throw it into the fire in Lincoln's Inn Field, huzzahing and crying, High Church and Sir Several! There was another evidence to prove the concern that the prisoner had in these illegal acts, and several persons appeared in his behalf, but their testimony contradicted each other and the jury could not credit their evidence, but brought in a special verdict. George Purchase was indicted for levying war against Queen Anne and etc. in the same manner that Demeray had been. On this trial, Captain O'Rill deposed that after seeing Dr. Burgess's meeting-house demolished, and a fire made in Lincoln's Inn Fields with some of the materials thereof, he met a party of the guards, who he directed to go to Drury Lane, where a bonfire was made of the pews and other utensils, and that there was a great mob which was dispersed by the guards, that the prisoner was very active, pushing at the breasts of the horses with a drawn sword, that this evidence asked what he meant, telling him that in opposing the guard he opposed the queen, and he would have persuaded him to put up his sword and go home but instead of taking this advice, he replied, quote, Damn you! Who are you? For high churches are several or no? I am, God damn them all, meaning the guards, for I am as good a man as any of them all, unquote. That he then called to the mob, quote, Come on, come on, boys! I'll lead you on! I'm for high church in Sacheverell, and I'll lose my life in the cause. End quote. The captain further deposed that after this the prisoner ran resolutely with his sword in his hand, and made a full pass at the officer who commanded the guards, and if one of the guards had not given a spring and beat his sword down, 
he would have run the officer through the left flank, that the prisoner now retired a little lower, and the guards had by this time dispersed the mob, having knocked down forty or fifty of them in the action. Richard Russell, one of the guards, deposed that they were ordered by the sergeant to march into Drury Lane, and to return their bayonets and their drawn swords that when they came to drury lane there was a bonfire with a large mob about it that near the fire the horse were all drawn up into one line with their tails against the wall that none of the mob might come behind that the prisoner then stood in the middle of the lane huzzaing and came up and would have thrust himself between the horses but the guards beat him off with the flats of their swords the prisoner produced some witnesses but as what they said did not contradict the testimony the evidences against him their depositions had no weight the jury were satisfied with the proofs that had arisen but having a doubt respecting the points of law they brought in a special verdict at the same time and place francis willis was tried for assisting in demolishing the meeting-house of Mr. Bradbury in Fetter Lane, and burning the materials at a bonfire in Holborn, but was acquitted for want of sufficient evidence against him. The verdicts respecting Demeray and Purchase being left special, their cases were argued in the Court of King's Bench in Westminster Hall the following term before Lord Chief Justice Parker and the other judges when, though every artifice in the law was made use of in their behalf, they were adjudged to be guilty, and in consequence of which they received sentence of death, and were executed at Tyburn on the 15th of June, 1710. This is the end of Volume 1, Part 3 of the New and Complete Newgate Calendar.